You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. A reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. This is uh, Lecture 3, given on October 26, 1909, entitled The Higher Senses, Inner Forces, and Creative Principles in the Human Organism. Our study of the senses has progressed to what we call the speech sense. We will now go on to what we might call the concept sense, using the term concept, not in its philosophical meaning as pure concept, but as it is ordinarily used when we form a mental picture of something someone tells us. We could have equally well called it the idea sense, or the sense for mental pictures or representations. First, though, we will have to inquire as to how this concept sense arises. To do that, we will have to refer back to the two senses previously discussed, the sense of sound or hearing and the sense of speech, and ask ourselves what it means to have a speech or phonetic sense, and how the perceiving of speech tone, as described here, comes about. I will begin by characterizing the special happenings that occur when a speech tone, an ah, say, or an I, or some other, is perceived. We need to have a clear idea of the process involved in the perception. Since we cannot spend a whole hour discussing it, I will limit myself to a few remarks that you can verify for yourselves as you think about the matter or that you can research in life. You know that in music we can distinguish between a single pitch, a melody, and harmony. You are also aware that harmony is based on perceiving simultaneously produced pitches, whereas melody is a series of consecutive sound pitches, in which case it is the individual tone as such that is considered. We can understand the mechanism involved in the perception of speech tone only when we study the relationship of the resounding element within the speech tone to the speech tone itself. Let us begin with harmony, in which tones sound together, and melody, in which they sound consecutively. If you imagine that you could make conscious what you unconsciously do in perceiving a speech tone, then the following would occur. Let us be quite clear that senses have an unconscious or at least a subconscious aspect. Senses would not be senses if the unconscious element in sense perception were raised to consciousness. In that case, we would have to speak instead of having reached a judgment, a concept or the like. Try to imagine the process that would have to take place if we were to carry out consciously what occurs in our unconsciousness when we perceive a speech tone. Imagine that you perceive a melody. When you do that, you hear the tones sounding in sequence. Now picture what it would be if you were able to compress the melodic line in which the tones are heard consecutively to the point of hearing them simultaneously. 
To do this, you would have to shove the past and the future into each other. You would have to know, in the middle of the melody, what was coming next, in order to slide the future into the present. This process, that we are unable to carry out consciously, actually goes on unconsciously in the speech sense. Whenever we hear an ah or an I or some other speech tone, a melody is instantaneously transformed into a harmony by an unconscious activity within us. That is the mystery of tone. This marvelous unconscious activity is carried out on a more spiritual plane, in a manner similar to that taking place within the eye, E-Y-E, when the various refractions occur according to the strict physical laws that we become conscious of only afterward. We are doing here exactly what the physicist does when he explains how refractions occur in the eye. Melody becomes harmony instantaneously. That is not enough, however. If that were all that took place, a speech tone would not result. More is necessary. You must realize that no musical tone is just a simple sound. A sound is a musical tone when, no matter how weakly, the overtones always sound with it. They are always perceived even when they are practically inaudible. That is what accounts for the special quality of musical sound as contrasted with other kinds of sounds and noises. In melody, then, you have not only its single pitches but all the overtones as well. If you instantaneously compress a melody into harmony, you have not only compressed the sequence of its single fundamental tones, you have compressed all the sounds overtones as well. Unconscious activity has something more to do. It must disregard the fundamental sounds and hear past them, as it were. Our souls actually do that when we hear the ah or I tone. It is not as though the other tones weren't there, but rather that our attention is shifted from them to the overtone harmony they make. Only then do we have the speech tone. Speech tones arise when a melody is instantaneously transformed into a harmony and then the fundamental tones are disregarded in favor of the system of overtones. These overtones, then, convey the meaning of the tone ah or I. Now you have what speech-tone perception really is, explained in the same way as the physicist explains the act of seeing. To take up another equally difficult but vital question, how are ideas or meanings perceived? How is it that we hear words, and even through or beyond words, so that we comprehend the meaning they convey? How does that occur? That something of a very special nature is involved here is at once apparent from a simple weighing of the fact that a great variety of speech tones can designate the same thing in different languages. Love is termed amor by one language and liebe by another. There is something expressed in each of these different tone pictures that is the same for both of them. This points to the visualization or concept sense behind them. While one hears a different speech tone with each people and each language, 
one hears through the tone to the same conception, to that which stands behind it and is the same, in spite of the differences of the tone pictures. That must also be perceived. How does this occur? As we search for an answer, let us study that process against the background of an assumption that I ask you to keep always in mind, namely, that mental pictures, concepts, are conveyed to us by means of speech tones. In perceiving speech tones, if we have a melody that is transformed into a harmony in which the fundamental tones are disregarded, which provides us with the tone or word sense, then it is necessary for the visualization or concept sense to come out, that our attention also be turned away from the whole set of overtones. When this is done on the soul level, we look back to what has been embodied in the overtones, to what is experienced as thought picture or concept. At the same time, however, as we hear the tones and words of the language we speak, there is that which has nuance and is a toned-down experience of a universally human element that pervades all speech tones and all languages, the thought picture or concept. We have talked of the fact that high spiritual beings, the folk spirits, who have a special mission in connection with earthly life, manifest themselves in the tones of speech. Footnote. The term folk soul refers to the guiding spirit of a particular racial or cultural group. For a further discussion of folk souls in relation to speech, see, quote, history of language in its relation to the folk souls, unquote, in The Genius of Language, Observations for Teachers, and a footnote. They work not only in mysterious murmurs, but also in the equally mysterious forming activity of the fluids of the human being as the system of overtones vibrates into the human organism. And it must be added that the universal human element that underlies the tones of the overtones is the spirit of humankind that we all share and that moves over the face of the entire earth. We come to know this wielding human spirit only when each of us, in our own particular locality, carefully listens through and beyond the overtones to the inaudible, to the purely imaginative element. In that, human beings have received the possibility of looking and hearing beyond nuances and of recognizing something common that flows over the entire earth. People have first attained the ability, in the course of human development, to grasp what is universally human. For it is only in our life of mental images that we begin to comprehend the Christ spirit in its true form, that of the universally human. Those spiritual beings whose mission it is to proclaim him in the most varied forms, and to each of whom he has assigned a special place, as Goethe so beautifully describes in his poem The Mysteries, these spirits, these messengers, sent by him, are the folk spirits of the various nationalities. This gives you an idea of the nature of the visualization or concept sense. With that we have traveled a very special path. We have exhausted the list of what is ordinarily said to constitute the human senses.
That end was reached when we examined the unconscious capacity of the human soul to disregard the system of overtones. What higher capacity can there still be? What is it that diverts our attention from the overtones? What in us reaches out like tentacles to push the overtones back? It is our astral body that has this capacity. Acquiring the ability to shove back the overtones, which in ordinary terminology simply means disregarding them, signifies a heightening of the astral body's power beyond its previous ability, when it could push back less. When does the astral body gain such strength? This happens when it has not only the capacity to push the overtones back, which will enable it to form mental images and thus arrive at the boundary of the external world, where tones can be observed as mental pictures, but also when it can thrust its astral substance out with its own inner strength without there being any resistance. Forming mental pictures always requires overcoming the resistance of the system of overtones. At the moment when we acquire the capacity to extend our astral tentacles without an external cause, spiritual perception begins. The organs of spiritual perception start to develop. When we become able not merely to withdraw attention from the overtones, but to thrust out our astral tentacle-like substance from a certain place in the forebrain located between the eyebrows, we develop the two-petal lotus flower there. Footnote, lotus flower, also called chakra, refers to the vortex-like centers within the body that form specific spiritual organs. The quote-unquote petals roughly describe their appearance to spiritual vision. See some effects of initiation in Title How to Know Higher Worlds, also in Florin Lounge, enlivening the chakra of the heart. End of footnote. It is the first spiritual organ, one that might also be called the imaginative sense. That is the eleventh sense. And to the extent that we keep on increasing our capacity to put forth our astral substance without any outer compulsion to do so, we develop further, higher senses. Work of this kind develops a very complex sense in the region of the larynx, the sixteen-petal lotus flower, the sense of inspiration. In the heart region it develops the intuitive sense, the twelve-petal lotus flower. And there are other, even higher, senses, but since they bring us into purely spiritual realms, they cannot really be spoken of as senses in the ordinary meaning of that term. It will suffice to add to the actual physical senses the senses of imagination, inspiration, and intuition. Let us ask now whether these three senses function only in clairvoyant people, or if there is something identifiable as activities of these senses also in ordinary people. Yes, indeed there is. If you have understood the way these senses function in clairvoyant individuals, you will say that they work by extending themselves outward in a tentacle-like manner. They are present in ordinary people also. But they project themselves inward instead of outward. 
just at the place where the two-petal lotus flower develops in clairvoyance, ordinary people have something resembling two such tentacles, directed inward and crossing each other in the area of the forebrain only. The ordinary consciousness turns these tentacles inward instead of outward, as in clairvoyant people. I will have to make use of an analogy to explain the situation here. You would have to do a great deal of meditating to go from the analogy to the actual fact, for it is a fact. You need only consider that we see what is outside us, but not what is inside. We don't, for example, see our own hearts and brains. And this holds true with respect to the spiritual. Not only do we not see our own organs, we are not even aware of them and are therefore unable to make use of them. They are nevertheless active. The fact that something is unconscious does not, does not mean that it is inactive. Consciousness does not determine reality. Otherwise, everything surrounding us here in Berlin that we are not momentarily looking at would not exist, though that is the reasoning adhered to by people who deny the existence of higher worlds on the ground that they do not perceive them. These higher senses are indeed active, but their activity is directed inward rather than outward, and we perceive its effects. How do we perceive them? When the imaginative sense directs its activity inward, what we normally call the sense of something, an external sense, the outer perception, arises. The activity of the imaginative sense has to be directed inward for us to see what is outside us. Everything we sense outside ourselves we can perceive only because what appears in the imaginative sense works into us. You must take care to distinguish, however, between what has just been called a sensation and a tone, for example. There is a difference between hearing a tone or seeing a color and having a sensation in connection with it. To see a color and say it is red is different from having the sensation that it is beautiful or ugly, pleasing or unpleasant in the immediate impression we have of it. The sense of inspiration also pours its activity inward, and that activity accounts for a still more complex form of sensing, that of feeling. The whole feeling life, which has more inwardness than the mere life of sensing, is an activity of the organ of inspiration that is directed only inward rather than outward. And the turning inward of the intuitive sense gives rise to what we know as thinking, as the forming of thoughts. That is the result of the inward-turned activity of the intuitive sense. First, we have the sensation of a thing, then we have the feeling of it, and finally we form thoughts about it. You will have seen that we have risen from the life of the senses to that of the soul, from outside, out of the world of senses. We have come to understand the soul in the human being itself, in sensing, feeling and thinking. If we were to now contemplate the still higher senses, they cannot really be called senses at all, that correspond to the other lotus flowers and examine their inward directed activity, we would find the entire life of the soul. When, for example, 
the eight-petal lotus flower located in the lower part of the organism, or the ten-petal lotus flower, pours its activity into us, an even more subtle soul force is generated. <clears throat> and at the end of the list we find the very subtlest activity, which can no longer be referred to simply as thought. It must be called pure thought, purely logical thought. That is what is produced by the inward-directed activity of the various lotus flowers. When this working into us ceases to be limited only to working into us and begins instead to become an outward extending of the tentacles that I have described as ordinarily inward-oriented, and when it undergoes a crossing and outward pouring as lotus flowers, then that higher activity sets in whereby we rise from the soul to the spiritual level. What otherwise appears to us to be just inner life in thinking, feeling, and willing now enters the outside world carried by spiritual beings. Thus you have comprehended the human being in that you have gone from the senses through the soul and on to that which is no longer in the human being but is rather something spiritual that works into us from outside and belongs to us just as much as to the whole of nature and the universe. What I have been describing to you in today's presentation, as well as in the two previous lectures, is the true human being, the human being that is an instrument for perceiving the world, for experiencing it through the soul and grasping it spiritually. That is the true human being. And what the human being is actually forms the physical body. I have not been describing human beings in a finished condition, but rather what is active in them. All that activity, everything that works together in the physical soul and spiritual planes, is what forms human beings as they stand before us upon this planet. By what means is that forming accomplished? Here, too, a few indications must suffice, but you will find them confirmed if you study the positive findings of outer observation. <clears throat> what we perceive when we use our outer senses to observe our fellow human beings is an optical illusion. It just isn't there. Fuller study turns up something entirely different. Imagine, just to draw a picture, that you are quite unable to see yourself as a whole physical person, so that as you look at yourself, you see only a part of your bodily surface. You can never see your back or the back of your head. You do know that you have them. You know it from information provided by the other senses, the sense of balance, the sense of self-movement, and so on. <clears throat> we are inwardly aware of possessing parts that we cannot perceive with our external senses. There is a good deal of us that we are unable to perceive and can become aware of only by developing the higher organs of perception that I have been describing to you. Let us now turn our attention to that part of ourselves that we are able to perceive with physical senses, with our eyes, for example, limiting ourselves to that portion of our bodies that we can see. What is the portion of the human being that we can perceive? Take these words in their exact meaning. By what means 
are we to perceive this visible portion of ourselves. Everything we discern is perceived essentially through the sentient soul. For if information were not to come to us through the sentient soul, we would not know what to make of it. If only the sentient body received such information, it would be no help at all. The sentient body would only look on without understanding. That the human being can perceive something is brought about by the sentient soul, which grasps what is going on. <clears throat> what is it that confronts the sentient soul there? What is it that faces the sentient soul when the eyes perceive it? It is quite simply the outer appearance, the external illusion of the sentient body. Of course, you will have to broaden the conception. You perceive yourself not only by casting your eyes over the surface of your body, but by reaching out your fingers to touch it as well. Here, you perceive it also through the sentient body. The sentient body extends itself over every part of us that is perceptible to touch, to sensing. But what we perceive is not the sentient body itself. If you were really to glimpse the sentient body, you would see at the place where you perceive the semblance of your physical body an astral element pressing forward and being pushed back. And when something is pushed back, it becomes congested. So, first, you have a working together of sentient body and sentient soul. The sentient soul streams from behind, thrusting against the skin on the front of our bodies, and from the front the sentient body pushes into it. <clears throat> when two currents become dammed up in this manner, the congestion manifests. It is exactly as if two streams were to collide. Something is bound to come to light. There you see the one stream and you see the other. Now imagine that you can see neither of them, observing instead only what emerges at this place through the two streams whirling together. That is the part of your physical makeup that you are able to observe with your eyes or some other outer sense. <clears throat> it is precisely at our skin where the sentient soul and the sentient body meet. We have here an example of what we have been considering from a spiritual point of view of the way these various members of the human being work formatively on the human being itself. We see how the soul works on the physical body. Now, let's go further. We can see that in human beings there is an interaction between the front and rear such that the sentient body and the sentient soul collide. There is a similar collision between streams that come from the right and the left. From the left comes the stream belonging to our physical body, while from the right comes the stream belonging to the etheric body. The physical and etheric bodies pour and thrust into each other, and that which arises at the place where they do so, where they work together, that is the sense-perceptible human being. An illusion, so to speak, appears before us. The stream of the physical body flows from the left, that of the etheric body from the right. They interpenetrate each other and build in the middle that which appears as the sense-perceptible human body. 
just as there are streams from the left and the right and from the front and the back, so there is also a stream from above and one from below. The main current of the astral body flows upward from below, and that of the I, capital, flows downward from above. The sentient body has been described as reaching a frontal boundary or demarcation. The current of the astral body streams upward from below, but then is taken hold of by a current streaming from behind forward and is thus restricted in a certain way. There is not just a stream coming from below upward and from the rear forward in this astral body, however. There is also a real current moving from front to back, bringing the astral body into being as the result of these various directional streamings, those from below upward and from the front and back. <clears throat> All these currents flow into each other, one from above downward, one from below upward, one from behind forward, one from the front backward, one from right to left, and one from left to right. What comes into being is the result of the flowing against each other of the currents coming from below upward and from above downward. Let me explain it in the following way. One stream flows downward from above. It cannot do so unimpeded because the countercurrent streaming from below upward stops it. The same thing applies to the right current, and so on. Each stream is halted, and that results in creating the illusion of the physical body in the middle. As we consider the two streams, that from behind forward and that from the front backward, we need to realize that they are intersected by the two currents coming from above and below. This intersecting, in fact, brings about a threefold organization in the human being. So we have to designate the lower portion of the one stream, the sentient body, in a narrower sense. What the congestion creates corresponds to what can be termed in the strictest sense the highest development of the sentient body. That is where the true senses develop which we can't see because the eyes themselves belong to it and which we can't smell because the organs of smell also belong to it. We cannot see into the inside of our own eyes. We can only look out of them. <clears throat> Such is the structuring of the complete sentient body of the human being. Why, then, have I been describing two parts as if it is all sentient body? The description was correct because what takes place in the lower part, is mainly due to external causation. In the upper part it is the physical illusion of what we call the sentient soul. In the countenance we have the expression of the sentient soul. The countenance is built by the sentient soul. The uppermost portion, the part shoved back the least, is the place where the intellectual soul builds its organ. Please note that there are not only these streamings from above and below, there are also currents streaming in from right and left, so that the whole is again intersected. We have one current coursing through the vertical axis of the body, which causes a kind of split to arise there. A piece of the intellectual soul is split off, and this piece, located right at the very top, is the form of the consciousness soul. 
The consciousness soul forms up above and onward into the depths of the human being, and it shapes there the convolutions of the gray matter of the human brain. That is the work of the consciousness soul on the human being. Once you know the human being thus, as a spiritual being, you can apply that knowledge to understanding every aspect of the human form, for that is how the spirit works on the form of the human body. All the individual organs are, as it were, sculpted out of the spiritual. We can understand the structure of the brain only when we know how the various currents whirl together as in a vortex. Now, let us consider one detail, so that you see how fruitful these matters can be if they become the common possession of a true science in the place of the external science we have today. We have seen that up to the top, the outer organs of the consciousness, intellectual and sentient souls are brought into being by the various currents. It would require long and complex elaboration to show how these organs continue within but we do not need to concern ourselves but excuse me but we do need to concern ourselves with another question the statement was made that the i capital works from above downward while most of the astral body works upward from below so that they touch in a stream this causes an interaction between the i and the astral body so that they obstruct each other <clears throat> where the i is to carry out a conscious action Something has to be generated that arises through the consciousness soul, the intellectual soul, and the sentient soul. Such a thing that the intellectual soul supplies, for example, is human judgment. Where are judgments located? They are in the head, of course, because it is there that the relevant living forces and members of the human being have found their expression. Let us assume as a special example that an organ were to arise in the human being in which the intellectual soul plays no part, in which no judgments are made, and in which only the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body, and the I are allowed to participate as carriers of pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, and so on. Let us assume that the four members of the human being, the I, the astral body, without the subtler activity of judgments and of consciousness, the physical body and etheric body were to work together. What would be the nature of an organ in which these four currents were to work together? <clears throat> its nature would be such that it would not allow judgments to arise. It would immediately allow a counter-effect to emanate from impressions of the astral body. The physical and etheric bodies have to work together, for this organ could otherwise not exist. The astral body and the eye also have to work together, for such an organ would otherwise possess no feeling and would lack the ability to respond with sympathy or antipathy to impressions. We will picture the physical and etheric bodies working together and visualize this organ as a physical entity. It must obviously have a corresponding etheric body, because every physical organ must be built by an etheric body. In this case, a current issuing from the right side of the etheric body of this organ would have to work together with a current coming from the left, that of the physical body of the organ, 
the two currents would become congested in the middle and, since they would not be able to shove past each other, would therefore bring about a thickening. The other two currents, that of the astral body rising from below and that of the eye descending from above, would call forth another congestion. Now let us picture schematically the working together of these currents in a single organ. I will make just a schematic representation of it. To fill in details of such an organ would require the inclusion of quite different suppositions. <clears throat> Let us say, then, that we have an organ that was formed somehow. There is the one current that represents the physical body, and the other represents the etheric body. They bring about a thickening in the middle where they meet. The other two currents that issue from above and below do likewise, bringing forth their own thickening. This gives us a drawing of the human heart with its right auricle and its right ventricle, its left auricle and left ventricle. If you bring to mind exactly all that the heart can do, you would have to say that the human heart must be built out of the spirit in exactly this way. This is how the human spirit builds this heart. It cannot be otherwise. Let us look at another example. A curious statement was made yesterday. It was said that a subconscious thought activity accompanies the act of seeing. Thinking on a conscious level takes place only in the brain. Let us recall how the brain is constructed to enable us to think consciously. There won't be enough time at our disposal to undertake a study of the chiseling out of the individual forms that compose the brain. It could be shown in the case of every single organ that it has to be the way it is. We want to presuppose, right at the outset, the system of the brain insofar as we need it. Disregarding everything else, we have in the brain an outer skin and then a kind of vascular skin between the vascular skin and the net-like skin we find something similar to spinal fluid, which then goes into the spine. The brain's interior is filled with the actual brain substance, with nerve substance. The nerve substance is the external structure for thought activity. This means that when an impression is imparted to the nerve substance by any sense organ, a processing of that external impression by conscious thinking sets in. That is all transmitted to the nerve substance. When an impression is received, it is first worked upon by thinking, and afterward it is processed further by a nervous system into a sensation, and so on. Now, let us suppose that no such conscious thought digestion of an external impression occurs. In that case, a similar process would have to be substituted. There would again have to be a kind of sheath. There would have to be on the back wall that which might be termed a vascular membrane. For certain reasons that could also be explained but would lead us too far afield for now, the spinal fluid would atrophy. To make subconscious thinking possible, we would have to push the brain mass back. This creates space at the front so that subconscious thinking activity arises without being worked through by a nervous system. Something has to be done with what would otherwise be taken up immediately into the nerve substance. 
The nerve mass would therefore have to be pushed back, for thinking would otherwise take place there. If that is done, however, we can neither think nor have sentient experiences there. If we push all that is the nervous system toward the back wall, and instead of allowing the impression to be processed immediately via nerve substance, allow it to be affected by something that is not permeated by a nervous system, we would have an organ suited to unconscious thought activity. Now, see what we've done. We have made an I out of the brain, E-Y-E. What actually is the I? It is a small brain, <clears throat> so fashioned by our human spirit that the actual nerve apparatus is pushed back to the rear wall, where it becomes the eye's retina. This is the way in which nature's architects, the modelers of form, work. This is the way they shape. There is basically only one blueprint for all the organs. It is modified only in the particular, as needed. If I could speak for weeks, I would show you how every sense organ is nothing other than a modified little brain, and how the brain itself is also a sense organ on a higher level. The whole human organism is built out of the spirit. Now let us look at another detail. First, allow me to make a preliminary epistemological comment in order to use it anew to clarify anthroposophy's view of the matter. We said that anthropology takes a ground-level standpoint with regard to the details of the life of the senses. Theosophy takes its view from the mountain heights, and anthroposophy occupies the middle ground. If you want to cling to the difference between the way people relate, on the one hand, to the outer sense world and, on the other hand, to the spiritual world and to the facts communicated by spiritual investigators, you can say that anybody who possesses senses and uses the intellect, which is bound to the sense world, can convince him or herself of its existence and its laws. People are, therefore, more easily convinced about matters that have some resemblance to what their senses perceive than they are about communications from spiritual researchers. They can see it more easily. It would be easy, however, to show that there is no formal difference between believing facts derived from spiritual research and believing someone who tells you that there was once a Frederick the Great. There is actually no formal difference. The only difference between believing in the existence of spirits of will and that of Frederick the Great is that there is material in archives stating that the deeds of Frederick the Great were thus and such. They happened on the physical plane. And if, on the basis of external facts, someone reviews the course of historical events all the way back to the time of Frederick the Great, you will believe what you are told, because there was no one living then who looked other than human. The reason why people believe such reports while refusing to believe in the spiritual world is simply that they are being that what they are being told is similar to what they have in their own surroundings. <coughs> spiritual researchers are not in a position to speak on the basis of their investigations of things and beings that look similar to what we have in our surroundings. Despite the fact that there is no difference between the two kinds of reports, however, and that there are good reasons for this, the comments just made should be kept in mind. Now we will proceed to another matter. 
Thus far we have characterized the viewpoints of anthropology and theosophy. There is good reason, as Dr. Unger has shown, to have well-founded belief and confidence in the presentations of spiritual science. Footnote Carl Unger, 1878-1929, one of Rudolf Steiner's closest students, of whom he spoke many times. Dr. Unger wrote, titled The Language of the Consciousness Soul, an in-depth study guide to Steiner's anthroposophical leading thoughts. <clears throat> End of footnote. That is a fully justified way of acknowledging its truths. The question arises, however, as to whether there is not a third approach. Are there really only two ways? Either acknowledging the truth of something, because it is similar to what we are used to experiencing in the sense world, or, on the other hand, merely accepting it because it is a communication from higher worlds. Is there not still another approach? In other words, is it reasonable to believe what we perceive through the senses only because we see it, or to believe in the spiritual perceptible because spiritual investigators see it? Can there not be a third approach between these two? Allow me to present an example to show you that a third approach is possible. Imagine a hammer lying there. I take hold of it and stand it upright. Now the hammer has moved. You will say that it moved because a will lifted it. There is nothing miraculous about this, since you see the manipulating will embodied in a person. You won't see anything miraculous about someone lifting a hammer. Let us suppose that this hammer were to rise to a vertical position with no visible being involved. Then what would you say? You would consider it very foolish to believe that a hammer that rose by itself to the vertical was an ordinary hammer which needs a person to lift it. What would you have to say next? You would say that it was obviously no ordinary hammer, but one inhabited by an invisible will. As you watch the hammer rise to the vertical, you simply cannot believe it to be ordinary but take it to be something that embodies some other will or some other spirit. If you, see a material excuse me, if you see a material object doing what you know to be impossible for such material objects, according to ordinary sense experience, even though you don't see a spirit in the hammer that lifts itself up, you would not only feel justified in believing that there is a spirit in that hammer, you would even consider yourself a real fool to believe otherwise. If you were not a precise observer and were out walking with a clairvoyant person, you might, let us say, come across a motionless figure lying on the ground. Because you are not capable of exact observation, you would not be able to determine whether the object is a real person or just a papier-mâché figure. The clairvoyant would tell you that it is a real human being and say, he has an astral body. You would have to believe it. But a third possibility is that the figure lying there might suddenly get up. You would then no longer doubt that the clairvoyant was right, that a soul and spirit inhabited the figure since it stood up. That is the third possibility. I want to speak now about a situation where you can have just such an experience, one that may seem remote but is nevertheless within reach. It was said that in the, in the human being the physical body's current flows from left to right, 
the etheric body's current from right to left, the current originating in the sentient body from front to back, and so on. The astral body's current flows upward from below, and that of the eye flows down from above, countering each other. All these currents flow into one another and intermingle. It was said that the eye works from above downward. How, then, must the outer organ be situated for us to be able to use it as an instrument of the eye? You know that the outer organ of the eye is the circulating blood. The eye could not function from above downward without its organ moving vertically through the human body from above downward. Where would it be possible then for the human eye to exist? Wherever the main current of the blood flows horizontally instead of vertically, animals have horizontal bloodstreams. The group eye of animals cannot find its own organ because the main circulatory course of animal blood is horizontal. That is the difference. The main circulatory flow of human blood had to be raised to the vertical so that the human eye could enter it. On the other hand, we have the animals in which the group eye cannot grasp the blood as its organ because the blood flows horizontally. On the other hand, in human beings, the eye can do so because the blood's primary course has raised itself to the vertical. Let us now examine the viewpoint that for purely external reasons accepts animals as related to humankind. Indeed, there are animal forms left over from earlier periods. But the time came when the whole circulatory system had to be lifted from the horizontal to the vertical position so that the human being could develop from it. We are looking at an historical case. Here we have something that is horizontally aligned. It is obvious from the observable characteristics of animal blood that what is horizontally aligned could no more lift itself into the vertical than could the hammer that is not permeated by a spirit. In the same way that it would be foolish to deny the presence of spirit in something that can lift itself, it would be just as foolish to think that the horizontal bloodstream of animals could, of itself, lift itself up to the vertical stature of the human bloodstream. Only if a spirit were within it, only if a will flowed through it, could the animal group soul transform into the individual human soul. Anyone unwilling to admit that he or she would be a fool to believe that ordinary hammers could lift themselves upright would be just as much a fool to think that to think that that which is in blood could raise itself to the vertical on its own. <clears throat> this is the third way by which we can verify all spiritual truths, in that we realize that things happen in the context of which it is nonsense to believe that only physically perceptible elements are involved. As we delve more deeply into matters, it becomes more obvious that the middle way of attaining certainty, which is based on spiritual sciences fructifying ordinary thinking, can be applied to everything. You have to admit that the human heart could not have been described as it was here without the foregoing spiritual research. Research must be stimulated by spiritual science. When the findings of spiritual science are presented and we then observe the outer phenomena, 
we see elements that simply could not be explained if we were not to take into account what is said by spiritual science. Thus, there is a method for observing things without bias. For example, when you notice that animal blood follows a horizontal course, whereas human blood flows vertically, and ask yourself what must be present in blood for the whole blood system to lift up to the vertical. And then you receive the answer from spiritual science. Spiritual beings rule the blood. You may then ask whether or not blood indicates the presence of a spiritual being exactly as a hammer would if it raised itself upright. This is an example of the middle standpoint of anthroposophy that observes physical facts below, observes spiritual facts above, and compares them, thus fully explaining what is encountered in the outer world. I have shown through individual examples, such as the transforming of the brain into the eye, E-Y-E, and the schematic internal contraction of the heart, how the form of every organ can be comprehended. We could construe the form of every organ out of the spirit in the same way. Every part of us would be a revelation of how spirit works on us to create the body's forms and organs. Only the principles involved were to be indicated here. But today's indications will give you a feeling that there is much in the world that the experts have never dreamt of because they have no desire to delve into such matters. If this feeling stays with you, you will see that it is indeed possible to view the world without bias in matters where the communications from investigation of the spiritual world are brought together with earthly things. Not everyone can immediately see such things, but one would be able to say that it is an absurdity not to accept the facts reported by investigators of the spirit concerning certain phenomena. If the described feeling persists, then enough has been accomplished through these lectures on anthroposophy, for progress in spiritual research is slow and gradual. The end of Lecture 3